gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. Ah, sorry, I'm making that ah sound not because I'm Michael Barbero, but because um, I recorded a couple minutes of this podcast and then realized that the uh, microphone was not on and nothing was recording. So um, until aliens catch those sound waves and reconstruct them eons from now, uh, all of that will be lost to history. And um, it's, a, it's a tragedy. Actually, that's a good place to start. Aliens capturing sound waves or radio waves. Um, if you ever seen the movie Contact uh, with uh, Jody, what's her face, and um, Matthew McConaughey, come on, why can't I even remember Jody, what's her face's name? Foster. I am sorry, it's that kind of morning. Um, actually, I should back up. I am in Springfield, Illinois. Uh, the not the birthplace. Abraham Lincoln was born in Kentucky, uh, but the home of Abraham Lincoln. I came out here on Lincoln's birthday, which was last night, which was also Super Bowl Sunday. And um, I'm staying at the Abraham Lincoln Hotel. It's a hotel with a tradition of existence. Um, And uh, because of crazy scheduling things this week and next, um, I am sort of hard pressed to get all my stuff done the normal way. Um, I am going on vacation next week. Uh, with friends and um, don't know if I will be producing uh, any content um, worthy of the entirely uh, value neutral phrase content. Um, But anyway, so I'm recording this as a solo. Maybe we'll record a, um, uh, a normal conversational remnant on Friday so that you're not stuck with two solo remnants this week. Um, Apparently, Guy, um, my uh, amanuensis or major domo at the American Enterprise Institute, is, um, or as they say in uh, History of the World Part One, piss boy, um, hates the solo remnants, hates having anything to do with them. And when I told him there might be two this week, he was, um, he said it, it filled him with terror. Um, what to make of that, I don't know. Um, whether to care, I don't know. So, where was I? Oh, right. Movie Contact. So uh, Jodie Foster, Matthew McConaughey. It was an interesting movie at an interesting time, and it really does give you a sense of where things were in the late 90s. Um, uh, the movie was written, it was from based on the book by Carl Sagan, and it was this really weird mix of science-philia and science-phobia. <laughs> One of my favorite lines. And I remember I was kind of obsessed with liberal nostalgia in the late 90s. And um, uh, and there was all sorts of stuff in that movie that was very fear the future kind of stuff, which was weird because it was a Carl Sagan movie, which is all about how science is awesome. And maybe they just didn't realize that the Matthew McConaughey character was supposed to be um, more of a antagonist or something. I don't know. I never read the book. I was never a huge fan of Carl Sagan's. Um, but anyway, Matthew McConaughey in one of the scenes, he's, uh, I think he's on, I think he's on Larry King show on CNN and he says, you know, something like, can you name one time in life where technology has made humans happier <laughs> or something like that? I should have probably checked the quote before we started this, but I wasn't planning on talking about it. Um, 
And it, I just always, it always stuck out at me because it's like, yeah, I can remember lots of times where technology has made people's lives better. I don't know. Penicillin, the automobile, the need not to churn butter all day, the need for women not to sew for 18 hours a day. I mean, you can go through all sorts of things that have, you know, what Francis Bacon called the relief of man's estate, which is what science and technology does. Um, and I'm kind of, I'm interested in this stuff a lot these days because of the AI stuff and I'm, I'm working on this project, but we'll get to that. Maybe we'll get to that in a second. I don't know. Um, I really, I don't like working through ideas on the podcast in ways that I don't mind it in the G file, but, um, anyway, we'll come back to that in a second. Uh, the movie contact, the reason I, I the thing about the movie contact is, you know, so I didn't meet the press yesterday. Uh, I'm recording this on Monday and, um, which would make yesterday Sunday afterwards, Chuck Todd asked me to do the, uh, Chuck Todd cast. You get it. It's a podcast called Todd cast. Um, and, uh, it was fine. It was fun to talk to him. Uh, you know, Chuck and I are about the same age. He's obviously more liberal than I am, but we see things in um, a lot of the same ways. He's like the only guy I've run into in a while who basically agrees with me on all sorts of China stuff. Anyway, it's a good conversation. But one of the points I made on there in that conversation um, was how you can take so many of the clips from the nightly news, from cable news, um, even from White House statements, you know, from John Kirby, the national security spokesperson. Um, and you could put them into movies like the movie Contact, because that was one of Contact's, they weren't the first to do it, but they were close. Um, you know, there was, this was a big controversy in the middle 90s about um, blurring the lines between news and Hollywood. And people went back and forth about, you know, what was appropriate and what wasn't appropriate. But uh, Contact has all of these clips from, or at least this is my memory of it, from the news. And the one I always remembered was uh, when there was a meteorite or something like that that was found to maybe have had organic matter in it, which suggested that there might have been life on another planet. Um, I think this was clawed back since then. Like maybe the microorganisms or the microfossils of microorganisms had snuck into the rock um, after it hit Earth. I don't remember. But anyway, uh, Clinton gave a press conference about it. And the producers took that press conference and kind of cut it up in a way to make it seem as if the alien contact in contact was what he was talking about. And you could take so many of the clips from the last week about shooting down these unidentified objects and put them into Independence Day kind of movies, contact kind of movies, um, without any CGI, you know, editing of their lips or their audio or whatever, just the image, the, the actual straight cuts sounds like the first five minutes of a war of the worlds type movie. You know, we shot down the fourth in three days of these, uh, unidentified flying objects. And, um, the white house is being very quiet about what it means and what they are and where they came from. I mean, literally like word for word from Hollywood scripts kind of thing. And for all I know, there'll be like 10 more shoot downs in the next, uh, you know, by the time you guys hear this. But um, anyway, that's what brought that to mind. I don't have much more to add on 
the balloon thing. Oh, I did one thing that I got some largely positive, but some negative feedback from, you know, I've, I've been making this point for a while now that we should stop getting hung up on the fact that the thing was a balloon. So it's a balloon. Fine. It was a dirigible, right? Um, uh, pod keeps calling them Zeppelins, which I don't think is right. Uh, but there is drones. They're all drones, right? Whatever, you know, any of these things that are being guided from a faraway place um, to spy on America are surveillance drones. And so we had been talking on Meet the Press about, you know, how there was a lot of stuff on social media about how this is aliens and blah, 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 blah. Um, in part because of the new information vacuum from the administration, people are filling in the blanks themselves. And I made this point about the drones. And then I just sort of said, you know, I don't mean to rehash the alien thing, but to quote Yoda or to paraphrase Yoda, uh, the drone wars begun they have. And um, I did not do it in Yoda voice or anything like that. What would like... I'm not a good, I'm not a good impersonation guy, but the drone, no, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, you thought I was going to do it. I can't do it. Um, And um, maybe we'll put a version of me trying at the end of this thing. So, uh, but the drone wars have begun, right? I mean, like whether or not China is lying about shooting down unidentified flying objects over China, they're saying they are. And we're going to have a lot of, you know, false flags is the wrong term, but we're going to have a lot of weird talk about how the skies are full of these things. And apparently they're, I don't know if they're full of them, but the skies are, have a lot more stuff in them than we realized. And I really want to know what this cylindrical thing that we shot over Alaska or maybe um, Michigan, uh, what it mean, its means of propulsion was. Um, I heard someone on NPR say that it was only moving as fast as the wind which would suggest it's some sort of glider kite kind of technology, but it's as big as a car. And, you know, so what's it doing up there? I don't know. Um, this does remind me, I remember in either late high school or early college, but we used to talk about it a lot when I was in college. It's a true story. You can Google around for it. Um, there was a dude who tied a whole bunch of helium balloons to his lawn chair. I mean, like a bunch, like basically... Uh, the movie Up, but with a lawn chair kind of thing. And then he untied it from the ground and went up in and went up really high. I can't remember. Maybe my memory says it was higher than it was, but I believe it was spotted by commercial passenger aircraft. And he had a BB gun with him that he would use to ping, to, to put out one balloon at a time to manage his descent or something like that. I wish I could remember how it ended. I'll find out the second I finish talking about this. But um, that has always, that, that, that is one of those things that comes up in my stress dreams from time to time is the idea of being on some cheap old, you know, nylon strip sort of faded rainbow uh, pool chair um, and being like, holy crap, this is going much higher, much faster than I planned. Um, you know, and forget how cold you would be. Just like, like this is, you know, I immediately regret my decision kind of flop sweat panic. Um, and I'm not super terrified of heights. I am pretty terrified of falling. Um, anyway, all right. So enough with the silliness. You'll note how I don't complain how I feel so stupid doing these things from you know, every time I do them, but I still sometimes really feel stupid doing this. I'm sitting here looking over beautiful downtown Springfield, Illinois, um, 
actually right out my window is the Wyndham Hotel um, and the Starbucks. Uh, and that's about all I can see. So where to go? So I'm going to write my LA Times column today, which will be up at the dispatch, you know, later in the week. Um, I think I'm going to do it. Um, well, I shouldn't say I think I'm going to do it. Like when I when I say I think I'm going to do the G file on something, I'm sincere about that because I don't know what I'm going to write the G file about um, when I'm recording these things. Um, I know what I'm going to write the LA Times column about because I always have to talk to my editor the day before just to make sure um, they don't have somebody else doing it. So I'm going to do something on this Buy America stuff, which I think is kind of a, it's a depressing backslide for Republicans. Uh, to be all in for this stuff. Um, it's also a weird sort of, there's a lot of weird talk about how this is like a new position for Democrats. When this, when I was growing up, this was in the DNA of um, of Democrats going way back. You know, we called it protectionism back then because it is protectionism. The Buy America thing is protectionism. Um, and uh, like I was... When I was a young policy gnome at AI, we did a, uh, my old boss, Ben Wattenberg, he put on, he organized, or we organized, because I did a lot of the scut work, um, a debate between Phil Graham and Dick Gephardt on protectionism. If memory serves, it was a bad debate altogether. Generally, it's really interesting. Politicians are bad debaters. Um, American politicians. I, I suspect that British debaters, British politicians are much better debaters um, because they all come, I shouldn't say all, but all, disproportionately come out of those, you know, elite schools where they do the Oxford Union style debates. They come out of those elite high schools where they do that, where they take rhetoric more seriously. And because of things like prime minister's questions, the parliament takes their political system rewards rhetorical skill more than um, our system does. Um I only ever asked Charlie Cook about this, but I, I remember talking to Kevin Williamson about this. Um, and he said he had talked to Charlie about it. You know, because if you listen to Charlie, Charlie, you know, when he does, when he's on the editor's pod podcast or when he's on here, he has almost this sort of 19th century way, this ca weird cadence of asking a rhetorical question and sort of, and then either implicitly or explicitly answering it. Of the good talkers I know, he is probably the best at the dramatic pause of anybody in this sort of podcast pundit space. Um, and, and Kevin, you know, Kevin's answer was that it was in part just because it was sort of in the water in school when he was growing up is that there was a certain expectation that if you're sort of like being a good writer, you were also going to be a good talker like that. Um, but anyway, politicians tend to be pretty bad debaters in my experience. Um, I've debated a few. Anyway, the gap part... Graham thing was bad. I'm, I'm getting distracted by this fascinating question about why American politicians tend to be bad at debate. Um, but we can put a pin in that and come back to it another time. Uh, this Buy America stuff is such old hat. And, um, and I understand why it is popular. I understand why it sounds popular. I understand why it sounds good. Um, of course, we should, you know, buy from our own and all that kind of thing. Um, and I want to be clear, I am not as purist on this kind of thing as some people are. I am much more sympathetic to the idea of like, if you live in Springfield, Illinois, you know, buying from your local community. Um, I think that kind of stuff makes a lot of um, 
that the emotional appeal there makes a lot more sense to me um, than sort of at the macroeconomic scale of buy American um, in federal contracting and all this kind of stuff. Um, I'm also partly for political realism's sake, but also partly for national security reasons. I'm, I'm open to and at the margins in favor of some of these things in things like defense contracting, you know, even in agriculture. Um, I'm here to speak to an agricultural group. At the margins, I'm okay with things that would maintain our capacity of self-sufficiency um, in the production of, of agriculture. But like, I mean, like one way to think about it is like, we have a Buy America program when it comes to sugar in this country. And it's the Florida sugar subsidy, um, which Marco Rubio has fought for, which every Florida politician has fought for. And it's garbage, right? Growing sugar in Florida is more expensive than growing it in all sorts of other places. Um, and we, you know, not to get all Mansur Olson on everybody, but, you know, it's the, he was the guy who coined the phrase or the concept of concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. It costs everybody a little more money to buy um, Florida sugar, but it delivers massive profits to Florida sugar producers. At least that was the case. I don't think we've done anything about Florida sugar subsidies in the last few years since I, since I looked at this. It would be sort of, and, and, you know, to have sugar subsidies in America is like having citrus fruit subsidies in Canada. There are probably a handful of places that can grow, you know, lemons and oranges and all that kind of stuff. But is, is it really the highest, best use of Canadian tax dollars to be growing stuff in that climate? And, you know, while the Florida climate is fine for, for sugar, there's just not enough room to grow the sugar to meet demand here. And, um, it's it's basically you know a law that says we're gonna we're gonna charge everybody more um, to benefit a handful of people. That's how I view. But like on you know the semi the chip act stuff about building a semi, a, a high end you know semiconductor plant in the United States and why are they still semi? We've been building semiconductors for for you know all my life. When can we get the full conductors? But you know. We've learned with the supply chain stuff and with the China tensions that having all of our eggs on the island of Taiwan when it comes to the high-end stuff doesn't make a lot of sense. And so I have no problem with, at the margins, figuring out ways to um, give us some uh, durability and self-sufficiency when it comes to critical national security type stuff. But I would draw that, I would err on drawing that line really narrowly. Like, we should be able to build fighter jets in this country. Or at least get fighter jets, the parts we need for fighter jets, from very friendly countries that we would have a hard time imagining going to war with, right? We want supply chains for the crucial national security stuff embedded with either on our own soil or among nearby allies. Um, and I think when you... When you look at how there are so many interesting new lessons or old lessons being relearned about logistics and supply lines, not just from the pandemic, but really from the war in Ukraine and the, the taking seriously the possibility of war um, in the Taiwan Straits, uh, getting all that stuff together, even if, it may, even if there's an added economic cost to it, 
makes a lot of sense to me, or at least I am definitely open to the arguments. Um, and you got to kind of look at it closely uh, because that's part of the problem. Everybody ends up wanting to make some sort of national security argument for if, if the if the exception to free trade principles is going to be national security, then all of a sudden every single widget and doodad in this country is going to be claimed to be essential to national security. You know, there's this debate about whether or not uh, Chinese and other co- countries can buy American farmland. And, um, you know, I'm looking into some of this stuff because of the talks I got to give next day to. Um, and the thing is, is like, that doesn't bother me at all. First of all, from a trade perspective, China is, if Chinese firms own American farmland and want to uh, cultivate it as farmland and sell those products, that is probably going to be a pretty good um, bulwark against a trade war with China over agricultural goods because it's going to be China's own firms going. I think a lot of that, a lot of that Belt and Road mercantilist stuff that China's been doing for the last thirty years doesn't make a lot of economic sense. But if they want to do it, um, and if that's a way to sort of hedge against um, trade barriers, then I think it's fine. But people who say we're going to lose the ability to control our land in, in, in a time of war or anything like that, I'm sorry. Like, if we go to war with China, um, I suspect that the Chinese-held farmland in the United States um, will not be seized and exported to China anytime soon. Um, and maybe after the war, there will be some court cases about, you know, unlawful takings or... or um, repatriation funds or reimbursements or whatever, that's fine. But like if that land is producing wheat during the World War III with China, that wheat ain't going to Beijing. So like who cares if China owned it? Like where do you draw the line? Um, Dominic Pino, I got to go find it, uh, did a great piece over at NR about all this where all of the um, stuff that Biden's most into about Buy America is like, American lumber, you know, and American glass and American this and, you know, American construction materials. Take American lumber. Well, okay, American lumber, I've got no problem with American lumber. I also, you know, I kind of have a environmentalist, conservationist kind of point of view that if we can get lumber more cheaply from Canada, and that's where all the, that's where American lumber industry really has a problem is they want to keep Canadian lumber out because Canada has a lot more trees and a lot more lumber um, on the market. If that means we have more old growth forests in America and fewer in Canada. I'm kind of a natural resources uh, nationalist on this stuff. You know, like let's have our forests be bigger and better and older and cut down more Canadian trees. But like, if you want to ask the question, you know, why does it cost so much money to build a house? You're basically saying, you know, you're telling a middle-class family in America, yeah, this house is going to cost you $10,000 more, whatever the number is. It's just a hypothetical. Um, so that uh, people in America can, so that the American lumber industry can sell you more expensive wood than Canadian wood. And it doesn't matter how you sort of hide the ones and zeros and, and move the bump in the carpet around on this stuff. The simple fact is, is that we would be taxing Canadian lumber um, uh, at a higher rate, you know, be a sales tax or, uh, you know, or some sort of other import um, tax on cheaper, equally good 
materials. I just have no confidence that, you know, there's a lot of poetry in that concept. You know, there's a lot of like romantic, warm feelings about saving American lumberjacks or whatever. But why do we think the government has a better idea of how to set prices for those kinds of commodities? You know, and what bothered me about that State of the Union address is Biden is saying how, you know, I'm a, a capitalist, but capitalism without competition isn't capitalism. And what he's saying is, is he doesn't want American companies, American firms to face competition from foreign firms. And this, the, 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 the invitation to cronyism and self-dealing and rewarding your friends and punishing your enemies, which we got a lot of in the Trump administration, and we got a lot of them in the Obama administration, and it looks like we're going to get a lot of them in the Biden administration. It's just such an unbelievable invitation to do that kind of thing when you create these amorphous standards about buying American, you know, particularly in a global supply chain where you've got bits and pieces made all over the world. You then basically give bureaucrats the ability to set arbitrary numbers about where, you know, is... is is this engine block 50% American, 70% American, 30% American? And the idea that you can't trust businesses to make these decisions for what is best for their business so they can be competitive um, in world markets, I just, I think it's nonsense. And, um, and it's so contradictory because Biden keeps talking about, and so do Republicans, talking about economic competition with these other countries. And they seem to think we'll be more competitive if we... Um, protect all of these firms from competition and protect consumers from lower costs. Um, I'm not saying there aren't smarter and dumber ways of doing some of this stuff, but um, big picture, I just, you know, uh, barring the national security stuff, I don't buy um, that the Biden administration is going to have a steely-eyed, disciplined approach to this. And it's not going to be more about which lobbying firm got the right person on the phone to say, hey, look, you know, um, we're more American than those guys. Um, let me give you an example from real life. And I got to be very careful because I'm, I'm uh, you know, this is not a deeply reported, let the other side respond to the accusation kind of thing. But I know a conservative organization that uh, got very Trumpy, fired a lot of non-Trumpy people. And um, the accusation was, which I've heard from more than one person, I feel comfortable describing it abstractly because I'm not naming any names. Um, the accusation was that the new leadership came in and just got rid of competitive bidding for all sorts of contracts, rewarded friends, rewarded family, um, uh, did all sorts of inside dealing, um, picking winners and losers, uh, which ended up ended up meaning that the, the donor's money was being spent uh, inefficiently um, um, and, and profitably on friends of the people running the organization. And I remember at the time when I was being, when, I was, when this was all being described to me, thinking, what a great little example of sort of, you know, Trumpy economics in miniature, where you basically just sort of think, um, you know, my friends are my friends and therefore they deserve special consideration and my enemies um, get nothing. And anybody who isn't my friend is presumptively my enemy. Um, and, and since it's not really our money anyway, 
um, let's just all scratch each other's backs. And I think there's an enormous amount of that kind of thing in, um, in the nonprofit sector generally. And I, I definitely think that's the case on the left as well. I mean, I mean, it's a, admittedly an outlier, but you look at the corruption of things like the Black Lives Matter Foundation, uh, you know, buying mansions and all this kind of stuff. Uh, there's a lot of that, but that's the, but it's, what was interesting to me about it was the sort of how the, the micro behavior track was consistent with the new way of thinking about how to do economics in America. And the second you start having this attitude of, of we are going to throw aside notions of uh, competitive bidding, uh, lowest price, all that kind of thing, efficiency, um, passing on savings to the taxpayer or the consumer, and instead the more poetry and the more uh, gauzy romantic feeling you insert into the policy confer- uh, po- into the policy pro- policy making process, the more you get a bunch of actors at the at the decision points in government, basically saying, "Hey, look." I now have a lot more leeway to sort of say, you know, you're one of the good guys, so I'll get you that contract, but you got to do something for me. And, um, you know, and I, anyway, I think that that's, that's my basic, my biggest problem with the Buy American stuff is it basically is a, it's a backdoor way towards um, what Edmund Burke or John Locke would call, you know, arbitrary power, um, the ability to make decisions based upon your your gut without reference to clear, fair, neutral rules that are designed for the benefit of everybody. Um, and then, I mean, there are obviously all sorts of other problems, which I guess I'll f- try to figure out or delineate when I write about this. But, you know, it's like when you, when you start doing Buy American, that encourages all of your trading partners to start doing Buy Canadian, Buy French, Buy German, and you're on your way to a, you know, a trade war or whatever. It also just, I'm sorry, I, I'm just trying to think this through because I got to write about this. I think it also just reduces, you know, it, it not only does it second guess the ability of business, you know, of, of business people to figure out what's best for their firms. It also second guesses the ability of consumers to figure out what's best for the, what's best for them. You know, I mean, let's say, I don't know, your kid has some disease and there's a, medicine made in Germany and there's a medicine made in Ohio and the medicine made in Germany is much better, much more efficacious than one in Ohio and it's cheaper. But, um, there is a buy American, uh, policy in pharmaceuticals. Should you really defer to the government for what is best for your kid and for your ability to like afford taking care of your kid? Um, simply because of this this concept of buy American. Now, of course, that's a fiendishly clever example because it's not about national security, um, but it is about, you know, the life of a loved one, which is a sort of also a sort of gauzy romantic, um, legitimately so uh, concept. But OK, so now let's say it's your family business. Not family business. Let's say it's, you know, uh, you want to uh, build your house and. You cannot afford to do it unless you buy of equal quality <laughs> um, Canadian lumber at Canadian lumber prices. And the government is saying, no, 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 you have to buy American. And it's an extra, you know, you know, 
$50,000 or whatever the number is. Why should you defer to the government for that decision? You know, why, why is your bottom line, you know, economic consideration uh, illegitimate or inferior to what is good for the government? And this gets into things like, so there was this thing, now I forgot I was going to write about this and I didn't, I think it's too late now, but, you know, Ezra Klein did this, and I, I wouldn't have taken it so seriously except um, some economist guys from like the George Mason um, Mercatus world, you know, were tweeting about it. And I thought, okay, well, if they take it seriously, I should too. Um, he had this long piece. It was interesting about how productivity and construction has crashed since, or has, I shouldn't say crashed, has stagnated since about 1970 um, in real terms, right? Investment hasn't gone down. Um, productivity has. Um, it just, it's, construction has literally gotten more expensive and more difficult. And I would argue, at least aesthetically worse since the 70s. And we don't really get too deep in the weeds in it. The funny thing about Ezra Klein is, I think he's a very smart guy. And I'm trying to let all sorts of past animosities get memory hold because I just, I don't, I like, I don't like, like to carry around, you know, old stupid blog fights from 15 or 20 years ago. But, um, the funny thing about reading Ezra is, is like he's always, he's like a mom of a screwed up kid who will talk about all the reasons why his kid has had bad luck, except for the fact that he's a screw up. He will talk about all the very real problems we have in our society, but government can never be the problem. <laughs> you know, and the government can never be the cause of it. And whenever government is the cause of it, it's sort of the wrong kind of government or the small C conservatives in government um, who are to blame and the right-minded liberals who believe the government is there to do all good things for people are never to blame. And if we could just convince, if they could just be given the power to do the right things, everything will be fine. And so his explanations are all over the place about, you know, there's sort of this implied thing about sure regulations might've had something to do with it. But anyway, I sent this piece off to a couple of people I know in the construction business, very successful people in the construction business. And they're like, eh, I think it's just all regulations is the problem. It's just, it's, it's really difficult. And, you know, and, and, and again, Dominic Pino, he does great stuff at NR, you know, he ran through OSHA founded in 1970, the clean air, you know, the, 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 uh, environmental protection act, 1970, all of these things founded in or around 1970 that, you know, the date that Ezra Klein, you know, marks as the beginning of this problem while basically at the same time, excluding government from the problem. It kind of reminded me of uh, uh, George McGovern wrote this famous op-ed, I think in like 87 or 88 for the Wall Street Journal, where um, he was like, you know, I spent most of my life in government. I was in the Senate. When I left the Senate, I gave some speeches. I saved up that money. And then I bought, I, I think it was the Stanford Inn in Connecticut. Because so you always want to be an innkeeper. And then he writes this there's an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal about, man, I wish I knew about all of the regulations and red tape and litigious rules that we have suffocated American business with when I was in the Senate. And this is George McGovern, like the, the, you know, the dashboard saint of American liberalism in the late 60s and early 70s. And he was like, man, we just screwed the private sector in this country with all of these pointless regulations that don't let business people make their own decisions. Um, and... Anyway, I think that the, you know, the, the construction stuff is 
you know, I, I'm really of a, of a, I was listening to this piece on, on NPR this morning about Berlin and it made me think of all of this stuff. Uh, they're doing another election because the, somehow they really screwed up the election um, and have to do a do over. And, uh, but they're talking about on NPR about how this is sort of a symptom of a larger problem in Berlin where every conceivable quote unquote stakeholder in society has to approve any decision. So nothing gets done. And they were like, to do the, um, you know, what they call them, the zebra crosswalks, you know, the black and white stripes for a crosswalk, like outside of City Hall, like I can't remember, I was getting coffee when I was listening to this, but it was something like 14 or 23 different groups have to sign off on it. And so nothing gets done. In Washington, my wife and I call it the, the coalition against everything. There are these groups who just simply hate commerce in my neighborhood. They hate change. Um, they hate the, uh, when there was a, Growing up in New York, I would have called a bodega, even though it was run by a, a non-Hispanic person in my neighborhood when I was, uh, when we first moved on, moved into the neighborhood. And um, he did this thing where he um, convinced the local community board, and it's called the ANC or something like that, to back his petition for an expanded liquor license um, because he told them that he would go out of business otherwise. And it was only because this was one of these sort of part of the neighborhood traditional kind of fixtures of of the neighborhood that they agreed to do it. And then, of course, he immediately turned around because it was all a plot. It was all subterfuge. He immediately turned around and sold his place to a guy who wanted to build a restaurant there, which became this place called the Boathouse, which isn't there anymore. And the anger that this caused among people in my neighborhood because they felt lied to, like they they were fine with it being this crappy old you know, barely a deli, but when it became this, you know, restaurant where you could have a fairly civilized meal and have a drink at the bar and maybe watch a football game or something like that, they were disgusted by it. And they felt, you know, betrayed by this other guy who had, had not been honest with them about the liquor license thing. And like DC is full of this stuff, um, which is one of the reasons why the DC business community is suffering so badly. Um, and the pandemic made things, you know, much worse too. But some of that is NIMBYism, to be sure, but starting in the 1970s, we imposed at the state, local, and federal level all sorts of avenues for NIMBYism to be more powerful. And to be honest, some of them I'm in favor of, like, or at least I'm sympathetic to. If you go back and you look at what the old, old Penn Station, the one that, you know, so there's the new Moynihan Station in New York, which is great. They converted the old post office, which was the sister building of the old Penn Station. The old Penn Station is just, it's just beautiful. I mean, it's just this, it's kind of out of like, you know, the world of tomorrow kind of glorious, you know, 19th century kind of architecture, giant, you know, bay windows and pillars. And it was just, anyway, it was just this glorious thing when you look at pictures of it. And, um, in the Robert Moses era, they tore it down and replaced it with that, you know, massive, uh, you know, urinal um, beneath uh, Madison Square Garden. And that launched the historic preservation movement in New York. And they saved a bunch of stuff. And I'm, I'm much more sympathetic as a conservative to saving a lot of that architectural stuff. I understand that cities need to be dynamic and change as part of city life and all that kind of stuff. But I can live with some of that. The, um, 
but the broader nimbyism that you get out there that comes from things like Buy America and also all sorts of like environmental, all these buildings have to be, you know, uh, they're, they're buildings going up in, in New York, you know, that now have to be um, completely or mostly reliant on renewable energy by 2027 or something like that. It's because of stuff like that, the building is more expensive. Um, and it's also because of stuff like that, the buildings are uglier. And, um, um, you know, that's one of my hopes about AI is that it, it kind of, um, you know, Michael Brennan Doherty made this point a couple, you know, a while, a couple of weeks ago, I guess, that, you know, one of the great things that AI might do is might be able to sort of bring back a lot of the architecture um, that we've literally forgotten or have priced ourselves out of. You know, buildings don't have to be ugly, but given how much more expensive construction is to meet all these things, maybe we need new innovative ways of coming up with ways to design buildings, you know, through advanced 3D printing of modules or whatever, um, or coming up with new materials so that, you know, new construction can be awesome and can have all sorts of modern technology, but also look like, you know, downtown Barcelona or Paris, I think that would be awesome. I mean, what if we could have more of those sort of classic Chicago-style buildings with all of the modern stuff? This has been one of these things I've complained about a lot, about how, like, why is it we can't have cars that just look like, um, you know, the old Mustangs and, and that kind of thing? And part of it has to do with the regulations and the the, the, the um, require, you know, the requirements for, for efficiency and, and safety. And I, I'm for the requirements for safety and all that, but like, do they all have to, does everything have to be uglier? On the AI thing, so I've been thinking about this a bit. I've been working on something. I don't want to get deep into the weeds on it because I'm still, I'm still doing a lot of reading on this. I've kind of gotten into this guy, Rene Girard, and his stuff about mimesis. Anyway, so I have this idea. If you've read something interesting, if this rings a bell with you, you know, send, drop me a note. Let me put it this way. Um, in the United States and other advanced economies, the amount of your labor dedicated to feeding yourself, keeping the lights on and providing shelter has been shrinking over time. You know, obviously for poor people, it's a, it's a much bigger slice of their economic pie of their of their week. But, you know, just go check out, play with the numbers at Human Progress or look at the appendix of Suicide of the West. You'll see what I mean. I mean, the amount of time, you know, one of my favorite measurements of this is, is the amount of time you have to work. Um, for an hour of light and um, like literally just a, an hour of indoor illumination. And that number has been plummeting um, for, you know, well, for 2000 years, you know, if not more, uh, actually definitely more. Um, and it's been plunging for the last century, right? You just, the amount of work you have to do to eat, to get a, the minimal number of calories to eat has been shrinking um, even for unskilled labor for a very, very long time. And as you move up the economic ladder to more, more affluent people, um, you know, that stuff is, you know, not counting the fact people have more expensive houses and mansions and all of that kind of stuff. The sort of base necessity part of their working life has been covered, you know, and it's a minuscule fraction of, of their work, right? And I think that's spreading. I mean, I think... Let's put it this way. If you take the rosy predictions about what AI can do, um, about, you know, about what, if you take the rosy predictions of how long it'll take for us to get uh, 
fusion reactors um, and sort of next generation or three generations from now, 3D printing and all that kind of stuff, you're starting to see a world glimpsed, you know, just over the horizon, you know, barring some apocalyptic war or, or fungal virus that turns us into zombies. You're really starting to look at a world that looks a lot more like the holodeck in Star Trek than you are um, one that looks like, you know, 1950s America. And, um, you know, as it is, you have people who can spend um, very little time actually making money and a lot of time entertaining themselves, and they're perfectly happy to do it. Um, unfortunately, some of these people have bad ideas about entertaining themselves, um, and entertaining themselves is more like, you know, video games and and drug addiction, but you get the point, right? We can, you know, the attention economy is becoming a place where people are increasingly live or, or could in the future become a place where we live. And so what does a society like that look like? Again, if you take all the rosy, all the good stories of this, right? And let's just say it all plays out great and we have massive increases in productivity, massive increases in um, energy production, um, to the point where we start cleaning up the environment and fixing the planet, all of these things. What are the criteria by which, you know, people get out of bed? What is it the thing, what is it if, if, if feeding yourself and feeding your family and providing for your family and providing for yourself really can become an afterthought? Why are people getting out of bed? What are people doing? And my view is, is that what, and I don't mean to go all sort of Jordan Peterson or anything like that here, but I think a big the best explanation I can, best prediction I can come up with right now, and this is the thing that I'm thinking about, is um, status, right? What, you know, what will um, give one person a higher status socially, sociologically, politically, than other people in that kind of economy? And um, that's not something I'm trying to think through. I think it's a really interesting question. I think part of what this sort of attention economy is about is that, right? I mean, right now, our definition of high status people, I shouldn't say my definition, but like, or your definition, but the, the definition that a lot of people have for a high status person is some social media influencer. Like the more followers you have, the more important you are. Um, the more subscribers you have, the more important you are. That's one aspect of what I am talking about is like, those people, they're making money from their high status, right? Their, their work is their status stuff. And um, they're not, the, sort of the old complaint about capitalism was that being rich gave you high status, that making money increased your, your, your status in society. And, you know, we forget that the original people to complain about that we're not the proletariat and the working class. They were the aristocrats. Um, you know, the phrase, uh, you know, jumpstart or upstart um, uh, goes back to the idea of people who were elevated above their station because of, um, you know, because of money to a certain extent, right? Um, the, the old ar aristocrats in Europe were the descendants of, of warlords, right? They were the warriors uh, who who gained power, um, you know, centuries earlier, and then 
held on to their land and were stationary bandits in the Mansur Olson sense and whatnot. And, um, and they came up with concepts like nobility and aristocracy to justify their intergenerational power and wealth. And then along come in the, you know, starting, I guess, the 15th and 16th century, but then in earnest um, during the Enlightenment, you know, these people who are, um, who are able to buy titles of nobility, buy um, uh, status because of their money. And the old aristocratic class hated um, the new bourgeois or uh, new money type people, right? Because they thought they were all low class people with bad bloodlines and whatnot. I think that's a natural human reaction. You get that, you know, from almost any group or organization where the, the newcomer is looked at suspiciously, but it, it's different at scale in all sorts of ways when you're talking about whole societies. It's also part of the explanation for anti-Semitism um, in Europe is that, you know, uh, with the emancipation of Jews, Jews all of a sudden were allowed to compete in all sorts of ways in the broader, you know, economy and broader institutions. And uh, they did well. And that was deemed to be illegitimate in some way. Um, but anyway, in today's society, you got particularly people under the age of, say, 30. Um, being a celebrity is a new kind of arist aristocrat aristocratic, aristocratic status. Um, you know, what, what have the Kardashians done um, to be, you know, to have the place that they have in, you know, in the hearts and minds of lots of people. And, um, and so anyway, like if you, at least in the old school, like I understand getting status, you know, esteem, if you want a different word, um, social rank from being a great warrior, right? That, that, that makes sense to me. I'm not saying that we should go back to that sort of society, but it makes sense to me. Um, and I get that, um, and I'm much more sympathetic to the idea of you having great status if you are a great business person and you've provided real value to society and you're rewarded in the marketplace with money. I mean, uh, I haven't mentioned this in a long time, but I always think about Tim Carney's point about uh, how much he hates it when he hears rich people say they want to give back to society. And his example was the guy who invented the cronut and, um, you know, which is this croissant donut hybrid, um, which I've never had, but it's supposed to be just freaking delicious. And, um, and Tim was always like, you know, look, you know, you don't owe us anything. You gave us the cronut and you took like a penny on each one for your profit for you personally, you know, other than building up your business and, um, you know, we thank you for the cronut, but you don't owe us anything more. You made the cronut. You gave us, you gave society the cronut, you know, and that's how I feel about all sorts of, you know, business innovations is like the, the proof that they gave something to society is because they sold well. Obviously, if you spend two minutes, you can think of exam counter examples that are probably aren't good on this point, you know, from everything from, you know, drugs to pornography, but you get the point. Anyway, so what if we truly abolish poverty? You know, what if we truly, and, I, and, and again, remember, we have abolished po poverty in the United States as an objective matter. If you take the definition of poverty from, say, 1900, and you apply it to today, all except, you know, essentially homeless people and a handful of subsistence living people in, in, in various um, backwaters 
are are above the poverty line. And, you know, the problem with homelessness is not a problem of poverty per se. It's a problem of lack of social capital. It's a problem of mental illness. It's a problem of, of drugs. Um, but, you know, the average working poor person in material terms, in terms of the calories that they can afford to eat, the indoor illumination, the heat, the shelter, um, the transportation, they live like millionaires compared to poor people 150 years ago, 125 years ago, um, in all sorts of ways. Their ability to travel distances, all these kinds of things. They, what they lack is social status because poverty in America and in advanced industrialized nations is not an objective metric. It's a subjective metric. And you know, as my dad always used to say, there's nothing in economics that says we can't all be millionaires. But there is a lot in economics that says even if we're all millionaires, some of us are going to be billionaires. There are always going to be people who are richer than other people. And this is one of the problems you get with status, right? With, you know, social hierarchies and ranking. And in a room full of uh, billionaires, a millionaire feels poor. And in a room full of millionaires, um, someone who makes $150,000 a year feels poor. Um, or can feel poor, right? I mean, I've actually been in rooms with lots of billionaires. I don't f personally feel poor. I feel poor compared to them, which is a different thing. But that's part of the problem with a lot of the conversation of inequality in this country. It's not a conversation about poverty. It's a conversation about how they're so much richer than we are. And that's why I have less concern about it than I do about other, so, you know, uh, public policy problems. But anyway, imagine we're a society where everybody's essentially rich and you don't have to worry about the provision of food and all that kind of thing. Um, what are the ways to think about how status plays into that? And I'm, I'm, Anyway, I have lots more thoughts on this, but this is the thing I've been thinking about a bit. I, I'm thinking about doing this as a, I, I, I've mentioned this before, every year I give this big speech at this thing that AI does called World Forum, and it's always a lot of pressure on me. It's, it's one of the only speeches I really sweat over every year because I have to think of something new to talk about, and they expect me to be funny um, and, um, and also insightful and also weird, and nudity has to be tasteful, and... Um, so anyway, I've been thinking about this. I don't know if I'm going to do it on this or not. Um, I guess it's, it's kind of a big, broad thing. And, um, there's a lot of more homework I got to do, but anyway, um, I'm going to read this book by Neil Stevenson called the diamond age. Um, while I'm on vacation next week, pod says it's all about a society sort of based on this kind of stuff. Anyway, that's all I got. Oh, so, uh, uh, so far the feedback is overwhelmingly keep the remnant intro as it is or at the very least, keep the music. Um, so uh, a couple people made the very good, wonky public policy point of saying the most important variable um, was left out of the question, which is how much does it cost to renew the license for the music? It's a good point. I actually don't know the answer to that. Adam just told me that the license was coming up and did I want to switch it out? And I asked you guys that question. Um, but yes, I, uh, the, the, the point is a good one from the people who made it. If, if the license for that music costs us a million dollars, that music is going away. If that music costs us 50 cents, the music will stay. That's my decision. Now, where between 50 cents and a million dollars the actual number is, I don't know. Um, but if it's not cost prohibitive, we'll keep it at least for the foreseeable future. Um, so, but thank you for the feedback. Also, thanks for the feedback about all the swag stuff. Keep that stuff coming. 
a lot of people insist, including um, Brother Starwalt, that we have to have some sort of no, you won't. This is a podcast swag of some kind. Um, so I'm open and I, I think I agree, certainly on the sticker thing. So, you know, if people want to sort of crowdsource for me what that slogan would be, you know, could it be like, you know, um, I'll see you in the remnant. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Um, something like that. Uh, that'd be great. And um, that's all I got. Now I got to go write the LA Times column and prepare for a couple talks I'm giving out here. And um, I'll talk to you next time. Drone wars begun, they have. Hmm. Hmm. The drone wars begun, they have. <laughs>